tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we're at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 22 for October of 2017. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about characters who deserve their own series. And our show topics include a look at Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access and our impressions of season two of The Good Place on NBC. Yeah, some great show topics there, rich with discussion potential. And the topic of choice today also is going to be interesting to see because we didn't discuss it ahead of time like we normally would. Dave is now retired and I don't see him at work as much as I, well, at all, like I used to. So we don't really discuss these ahead of time. So this will be good. And we also have our interview later on in the podcast with Samuel Barnett. He plays Dirk Gently on Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. So this one's going to be spoiler filled, Dave, right? It's got like every potential topic that we're going to be discussing with the exception of our discussion topic at the front of the podcast is super spoilery. Yeah, and I think that kind of goes without saying. But I I think with both shows we're going to talk about tonight, even with some of the spoilers, you'd still want to go back and watch the show, and I don't think it would ruin it for anybody. Right. Uh, Yeah, The Good Place is so different, season one and season two. You might be able to get a taste of it, but I do want to give that warning up front. Major spoilers in all of our segments, including the interview, for episodes that have already aired for those show topics. So if you need to avoid certain segments to avoid spoilers or just due to your own interest in what the show is being discussed. Here are the time codes for today's topics. Spin-off characters. 221. Star Trek Discovery. 1350. The Good Place. 3419. Dirk Gently Interview. 4902. All right, and our October discussion topic, which is spoiler-free, this is going to be a good one. It's characters who deserve their own shows. And like I said, we didn't discuss these ahead of time. And Dave, you've got some really interesting ones on your list as I look at our notes here, and I can't wait to get into this uh, because there are a lot of secondary characters that steal the show. Yeah, no question. And uh, why don't I go ahead and jump in first. And my first character that I want to talk about is Colleen Wing from Iron Fist. Amazing choice. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a pretty big Marvel guy. You know, I, I don't know the comics, but in terms of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and of course, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agent Carter, I'm pretty much a Marvel guy. I wasn't really thrilled with Iron Fist as a whole, but I think she really stole it for me. Now, I'm not going to lie. I think she's really attractive. And, you know, in my little list here of Lexa Doig, Melissa O'Neill from Dark Matter, and (laughs) Chloe Bennett from S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, she's in that group of four. But what I really like is the fact that she's not a traditional superhero. I mean, she doesn't have any superpowers other than her martial arts skills and her intellect. And the connection to Iron Fist would certainly get her show off the ground. And, you know, maybe the other defenders could operate in the background, sort of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, if you know that play, where Hamlet is taking place in the background. Yeah, there you go. The actual play. So I think it would be pretty cool. She's physically strong, mentally strong, and fighting skills for people that like that. And and obviously, that's a big part of Iron Fist. Yeah, I had to look this one up because I haven't seen Iron Fist, but I did pull up a fight scene. And yeah, you're not kidding. (laughs) That would be 
really fun to watch. So that, I like that choice. And my first one is going to be from a show, Orphan Black, that we both love and have podcasted about, believe it or not, just for a single season. But I always am enjoying the side plots that go on with Allison and Donnie Hendricks. And they really are a story unto themselves a lot of times, separate from the conspiracy plot line that goes on in Orphan Black anyway. I mean, they get involved somewhat, but just the whole mishaps that they have, especially with deaths that they didn't really intend to perpetrate, uh, such as the neighbor Ainsley the, that she thought was her monitor at first. And then, of course, Donnie taking out Dr. Leakey by mistake. <laughs> I mean, it's just dark humor. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Fargo. It's just black comedy at its best, where they are just suburbanites that get wrapped up in things they don't mean to even selling drugs at one point, like oh, yeah. I breaking mean, she's bad. The, she's the quintessential soccer mom, yet she has such a dark side to her that, you know, she didn't have at the beginning. I mean, again, when I saw that you had chosen them, like, again, what a great choice. And they really could, I think, survive without the help of all the other clones. And, you know, it'd be nice to see Felix once in a while and, and the rest of the crew, but, but they could hold their own. Yeah, I mean, just so many plot lines you could do with the community theater, the competing to be the top mom in the in the neighborhood, things like that. So I would definitely tune into that show. Okay. Well, my next choice, I, I almost feel like it's cheating because it's so obvious, but how could you omit this? And that would be Leopold Fitz and Gemma Simmons from Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and coming on the heels of the Bobby Morse, Lance Hunter, most wanted fiasco, I don't think there'd be an issue with these two. Now, I don't know that Marvel's going to do that, but <laughs> no. I, I think they'd get a, a pretty big audience. Now, on the one hand, though, the danger would be that it turns into a standard procedural, which I know you and I both sort of, I don't want to say abhor but, you know, if, if the procedural is just – and this is like Lucifer. The procedural is just a small part of each episode. It's almost operating in the background. So that would be okay as long as they keep that to a minimum. Obviously, we'd get to explore their relationship a little bit. But they both became more physical – as they got experience in the field, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm -hmm. So we'd still want to see them in the lab, but we'd still want to see them working out and about. Yeah, they'd, they'd be able to be armed and dangerous occasionally because both of them, like you said, later on in the season, the later seasons, did get to do some field work. Right. And I'd certainly want to see them explore the framework a little more. Oh, cool. I mean, that would almost be a crime not to. Well, you know, the show would be called Fitzsimmons, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I tune in for that. All right. Well, I'm going to go a little bit obscure with my next choice. Um, from Killjoys on Sci-Fi, there was a side plot that took place right at the end of season two and then right at the beginning of season three. And that was with Clara, with Alice, her giant machine gun arm that she had placed on there. Uh as a kind of way to make her a mercenary for hire. And these were, this was indicative of a larger culture called the hack mods, a whole subculture of basically put upon citizens who were almost like slaves that were used 
for their special abilities that were given to them by their technical enhancements where they were enhanced beyond the legal limit. And so they couldn't really, you know, live on the, in the mainstream. And I just think hack mods would be the title of this show with Clara as the main character would be so cool, especially since you and I have spoken many times that there's just far too little cyberpunk on television these days, or even in movies, Blade Runner aside. And this would be something that would be a great entry into it because of the small amount of exposure it got on Killjoys and yet how rich you could see that the backstory and the history of these hack mods could be. Yeah. And, and I mean, some of you guys, and I know you know that I review Killjoys for Den of Geek. And one of the things I pointed out in my review, and I was certainly disappointed that it didn't end up coming true, was that she was such a great character. And I kept waiting for her to reappear and reappear because, as you said, that that whole cyberpunk feel is something that I think is really attractive to a lot of genre fans and, and certainly the both of us. But that said, she was such a great character in and of herself that uh, hopefully we'll see her again, but I'm not holding out hope on that one. And they had the whole wiped memory and trying to figure that out. You could, you'd have that as your premise starting out. Although I have to say, since this is all hypothetical, I do think I would want Stephanie Leonidas back in the role just because I love her as an actress, but that's just me. That's, that's just a fantasy world here. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I mentioned that I felt I was cheating a little bit with Fitz and Simmons, and I kind of feel I'm cheating a little bit choosing a Doctor Who companion, but not really. Now, once I made that decision, who am I going to choose? Well, I went with Martha Jones, who's played by interesting choice. Freema Agumon, who a lot of you guys know from Sense8. She was the companion of the 10th doctor, David Tennant, and she was in season three. And for me, she appeared in some of the most memorable episodes of the reboot, the Shakespeare episode, the Vincent van Gogh episode, especially. Now she was in blink, but that was kind of a standalone episode that, that she and Tennant weren't really in all that much, but the parts she was in were just really, really good. And I love her character because not to take anything away from the others, but there was just a certain intellect about her that all the companions challenged the doctor. I mean, that's for the most part what they all do. But as a medical student at the Royal Hope Hospital, I think she could carry a show starting in a hospital setting in the middle of London or wherever, where all of this paranormal activity is still going on. But I think what I like about her as this choice is that of all the companions, I think she is the most self-actualized of all of them. I mean, the others, they're all young, mm-hmm. but the rest of them, they're, they're really still finding their way. And not, not that she's not, but I mean, she has a career. She She she, had some cool family drama, too, as I recall. Well, she did, and and certainly the others did as well, although I don't know that we ever met Clara's family. I don't know what the deal there was, but but certainly Rose. (laughs) There was a lot of family (laughs) drama there. Of course. (laughs) But uh, anyway, so last choice. Who you got? Okay. Now, I, I don't know if it's just because the last couple of podcasts we have inadvertently tied in our discussion topic to one of the other topics on the podcast but maybe it's just because Dirk Gently was on the brain. But there are these two characters, Bart and Ken, played by Fiona Doris and Mpo 
Kawaho that are just so good and they really do steal the show as good as all of the characters are in Jerk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Bart, the Holistic Assassin. And they should just call it the Holistic Assassin. That would be her name, her show. And just the fact that she is guided by the same universal forces that Dirk Gently is guided by, where everything is connected and everything she does, everyone she kills is for a purpose. And she has a, a bit of invulnerability about her, but she's a loner. And when Ken comes around in season one of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency and provides an anchor for her, it's so endearing. And it's just such a great buddy cop kind of thing, but also just like a doctor and a companion where Ken is kind of the sidekick as well. So those two characters definitely deserve their own show. And we do mention a little bit about those two in the interview. I spoke to uh, Samuel Barnett about them and those two are his favorite as well, as you'll find out. So (laughs) definitely deserving of a spinoff. Sounds good. Hey, They should pay us if they use any of these. (laughs) Exactly. And we'd love to hear what your thoughts are on social media. We actually heard from a few of you on social media about your female royalty that you would choose. And that was so great to see on Twitter and Facebook. People included their own lists of who they would choose. In fact, they had some overlap with some of our choices. So who would you like to see have their own show, some secondary character from one of your favorites? We'd love to hear from you. Just get in touch with us on social media. In the meantime, let's go ahead and get into our first show topic of the night, and that's Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access. And it's interesting that we just talked about the Orville, which is kind of a Star Trek pastiche of sorts, and now we've got Star Trek itself, but it's got its own bit of controversy, not the least of which, of course, is that it's on CBS All Access, a subscription service, and thus not available to everyone. So if you've been able to get a hold of these episodes, we are going to be talking about the first four. But, you know, if you haven't, we are going to be going a little bit into spoilery territory. This is a very exciting time for Star Trek fans because of the fact that it's been over 10 years since Star Trek Enterprise went off the air in 2005. And this show has a 15 episode first season and it's going to be separated into two chapters. The first chapter is going to be concluding in November and then a second chapter will begin in January of 2018. So there'll be a little uh, mid season hiatus there. We've got some great actors playing the main characters. We saw Michelle Yeoh guesting as captain Philippa Giorgio of the Shenju in the first couple of episodes. And Sonequa Martin green has been killing it as first officer, Michael Burnham, who of course is referred to as number one, just like, Jonathan Frakes was in Next Generation. And she also played Sasha Williams in The Walking Dead. And I think that's probably where a lot of people recognize that actress from. And then Doug Jones. How surprising was it to see him, Dave? We know him as another alien, Cochise on Falling Skies. And here he is playing a Kelpian science officer named Saru. Cool look. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because you you already mentioned the idea that there's there's a certain amount of controversy surrounding the show and i think we all assumed it would be strictly with the all access but it goes a lot deeper than that and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go on well and i think that has to do with the inevitable comparisons to the orville so yeah we'll definitely touch on that the vulcan hello was the premiere's title it aired on september 24th and episode 
2 also aired on September 24th, but only to those with the all-access subscription. And this show, not surprisingly, broke into the top 10 for most pirated shows with the likes of Game of Thrones and Rick and Morty, which aren't too surprising. I found out that The Last Ship is on that list as well. (laughs) I have no idea how that one ended up there. But Star Trek is right behind those three in terms of the most pirated show that's out there, because that's, I think, in some cases, the only way that these sci-fi fans are going to want to access it at all rather than paying for it. So, you know, take that as for what it is. But this show is set roughly 10 years before the events of Star Trek, the original series, but after all the first contact and things like that, certainly after the enterprise and the show sees a Klingon Takuvma working to unite the 24 great Klingon houses leading to a cold war between the Klingons and the United Federation of planets. And of course, if you know any Star Trek history, the Klingons and the Federation were the first enemies that showed up in the original series. And then we eventually moved to the crew of the USS Discovery in episode three, which I think is one of the most interesting choices here is the fact that you're going to make the episode one available to everyone so that they can try it out. And yet the first two episodes were essentially a prologue for the true tale and you and I, I think even you and and Wayne on, on Sci-Fi TV Rewatch discussed the premiere episodes, which are completely different from the later episodes. So it's very weird to have that be their hook. Yeah. And, and again, not to beat a dead horse with the all access thing, but I think what we're finding out in relation to the fact that it's the most pirated show in that list of top 10 is that there are a lot of countries that it's not even available all access. Yeah. I think there's a few places where you can get it on Netflix. Uh, I'm not sure which countries are are doing that, but Netflix has international distribution that's very different from U.S. So, yeah, it's very strange. The initial criticism, in fact, was that it was very dark and too serious to be a real Star Trek show. And my feeling was that it felt like I was watching a Star Trek movie in those first two episodes. But then when we got to the third episode and it was about the rebirth of Michael Burnham as this mutineer and she's trying to redeem herself, that's so much more interesting. But I mean, they had to have the preamble, but to have it be two episodes and be the only way that people got their initial exposure just seems strange to me. Yeah. And what seems strange to me is the idea that you're building this series around the redemption as you mentioned, of Michael Burnham, a mutineer, which personally I find a little bit problematic, but I I get it. And what's been pointed out to me, it's like, well, you like Jim Kirk. Jim Kirk didn't follow orders. (laughs) Yeah, but Jim Kirk never knocked out his superior. And I I mean, she went pretty far past anything Jim Kirk ever did. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there was some pretty deep mutinies in the original series, but anything after the next generation, it just wasn't done. Everyone got along and everyone followed the rules. So yeah, it is very much a departure from what most Star Trek fans are used to. But what was very interesting to me right off the bat is that the Orville had already aired a couple episodes by the time Star Trek discovery came out and right off the bat, people are comparing the two shows. Now, why are they doing that? Because they both, are Star Trek-esque, one of them in name and the other in appearance. In fact, some might say the Orville even has a truer next generation look to it and more episodic in that fashion as well. 
Whereas here's Star Trek Discovery, a serialized show, really. And there haven't been any serialized Star Treks, really. Right. Now, that really surprised me how many people prefer the Orville as a space science fiction series over Star Trek. I mean, they're radically different outside of the fact that the Orville is an homage to Star Trek, obviously. But still, I'm really surprised by that. Yeah. Constantly going back and forth in the comments section, I review the Orville for Den of Geek. And so I see those comments and then I filled in for the Star Trek Discovery reviewer last week and got the same comments over there. So it's definitely something that's noticeable. But that being aside, we do notice that we have this unique character, Michael Burnham, who was raised by Vulcans, and yet she's human. And her emotions often intrude, and I think that's a big part of why she deals with that in her mutiny. But visually, the show looks very familiar. The The uniforms are a little different, and of course, the Klingons are looking very different. And I think that was another point of controversy. Do we care? I honestly don't, personally. I know there are a lot of people who are already using the hashtag not my Klingons, <laughs> but I think it's great. The fact that they speak Klingon throughout and the language being very important to hardcore Trek fans is a bit much for some. I think you were in that camp, weren't you, Dave? That Well, yeah. The but Klingon I, language. <laughs> I mean, number one, I think it would be a bit silly to not update things, to not make the uniforms look better. And if they're a little different, so what? Yeah, I, I heard the criticisms that the bridge is too technically advanced if this is supposed to be 10 years before the original Star Trek. Well, you think? That was 1967 (laughs) with a tiny budget. But the Klingons, you know, I'm okay with that. They're still Klingons. And as far as the language goes, I've kind of changed my opinion on that because on the one hand, I felt like if you're going to have them speak Klingon, then have them speak Klingon all the time and use subtitles. If you're just going to have them utter a few words with subtitles and then have them speaking English, what's the point? But I think what makes sense is that if they do it that way, you still get a feel for the harshness of the language and the harshness of the race. And I think you, you can do that with just using the language a little bit. Right. And I do appreciate the cultural aspects that they've included there. And we'll get into the Klingon story as we go along, because I do think it has some interesting developments that have come up recently with the most recent episode. But really, it's all about these Klingons who have not been seen for, gosh, decades at this point. And yet this one family, I guess you could say that they are very much religious. They're attached to this idea of Kales which was a mythical historical emperor of the Klingon empire and a prophecy that's attached to the idea of lighting a sacred beacon and calling all the tribes to war. And they kind of engineer this situation. I mean, at least we're led to believe, you know, the Shenju is sent to investigate this damaged communications relay and they're not sure how it was caused by a meteor hit or something like that. I think it's clearly a setup where, Burnham was meant to investigate this platform or whatever you want to call it, where she was going to be challenging this fighter who obviously ultimately was unsuccessful, but they still got that torch lit anyway by uh, Voke, who's such a great character, the light skinned Klingon. That's kind of an outcast. So, so wait a minute. You, you think Starfleet set her up? 
No, I think the Klingons set Starfleet up. Okay. Not her specifically. No. Well, not her specifically. She just happened to to go out and investigate what was in the middle of the debris field. But But the reason I bring it up is because, you know, we haven't really talked about the fact that she was raised as a Vulcan. Right. And, And the fact that she lets her decisions be ruled by so much emotion is kind of surprising in that sense. Don't you think? I do. And I guess that's why I raised that question about whether Starfleet, you know, deliberately set this up, because it was almost like we need somebody to be the fall guy in this situation. Oh, really? That's an interesting viewpoint. I never took it that way at all. I think what we're supposed to see as viewers is that Burnham took a very interesting choice that no one else would have made in her place. Because of the fact that she was raised Vulcan. In fact, the episode is called the Vulcan Hello after the way that the Vulcans treated the Klingons after first confronting them with their own first contact. Every time they ran into them after that, they shot first. And Burnham is saying that that's the only thing Klingons respect. And that's where they'll stay out of our way is if we immediately destroy them every time we see them. And that's the Vulcan Hello. So I think there's something to what she wanted to do. I just think the way in which she went about trying to make that happen at all costs was too extreme. And of course, she realizes that as well. But who knows what would have happened had she just destroyed the ship from the very start? Would the whole Klingon war have begun? So, Well, the other interesting thing, Star Trek traditionally has focused on social and political issues, and it's certainly seems as if discovery is going to do the same. So when we look at that concept of shooting first, it's sort of interesting given the, the climate in the world today. Yeah, definitely. And they're definitely confronting a lot of different issues in discovery. As we go along to the USS discovery plot lines, we see a lot of that. In fact, if we can skip to the mutineer being captured and, and, Captain Giorgio being killed in the attempt to capture Takuma to have leverage against the Klingons. All that's on Michael and she accepts her fate. In fact, we see her months later after the trial has already happened. She's being transferred to another prison. And when the shuttle is suddenly in danger, she almost seems to be embracing the impending death. All the other prisoners are just panicking and she's calm because I think she's just like, you know what? I deserve this. And she's not expecting to be rescued by the Discovery and be be given a job. (laughs) Right. And I do like the fact that they've set her up as an unlikable character. And that as we go through the episodes, the instance you just pointed out, I really did find that compelling and and likable about her that she does completely accept responsibility for what it is she did. She's calm in the face of death. In fact, you might even argue that she welcomes it. Right. So as they're building her character along, I I think you have to give props to the writers for creating a character like that, that nearly turned me off to the series completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'm sticking with it. And so far, so good. Yeah. And it's complex because each of the characters kind of treats her differently the main characters, that is, I mean, Captain Gabriel Lorca, who's played deftly by Jason Isaacs. He's just a, a great character because he's morally questionable himself. He wants her for a secret science project and has been given much leeway to use her in his quest to use every possible 
means he can come up with to combat the Klingons. Then you've got Saru, who was on the Shenju and is now first officer of the Discovery. He is still understandably upset with Michael and points out to her whenever he can in a very polite way that she was in the wrong and that he doesn't trust her. And then you've got a third perspective from the new roommate, Cadet Sylvia Tilly, a very interesting character. She seems to be socially awkward. She even mentions her special needs at one point, which might lead you to believe she's got something somewhere on the autism spectrum, perhaps. And this obvious bonding ensues where she helps Michael. She's a little bit reluctant at first, but then starts to help her because they form this bond. And the only problem I have with Tilly, in fact, because I think she's a great character, is the fact that she does have an unusual amount of access to this top secret stuff for a cadet who still hasn't even graduated from the Academy. I'm not used to seeing anyone lower than the rank of Ensign on a Starfleet ship. Okay. Well, let me ask you something about Lorca. Is it fair to say that he wants Michael because he wants somebody that's not afraid to break the rules? I guess that could be. You know, there's a host of reasons. It could be something where he would have someone to blame should things go wrong. It could be that. I mean, not to discount her intellectual abilities because Uh they are legendary within the series. Yes. (laughs) Well, there could be a host of reasons why he's using her. But I think the fact that she was willing to shoot the Klingons down right at the very start may have grabbed his attention, even if he didn't agree with the manner in which she tried to uh, make that happen against her captain's wishes. So, yeah, Lorca is a very interesting character because he's not your typical Starfleet captain. He's definitely got some shadiness to his character, which we see. I mean, just the fact that we end that third episode with him having captured this creature off of this ship and hidden it away on the Discovery without anyone's knowledge, really, besides him and his commander, his security officer. I think that was kind of where we started to wonder if he was admirable at all. (laughs) I mean, we have never had a captain like him before now again it's very early in the series but still and then we've got another interesting character that you don't see too often and that's lieutenant stamets who's the science person working on this project which we discover is really not a bioweapon as michael first thinks she's investigated and found out that this captain is developing illegal weapons but a new drive a spore drive that can instantly take them from point A to point B. Uh, One might say a blink drive if one were a dark matter fan. (laughs) That's the first thing I thought about. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, it's a really cool concept. It's of course problematic in itself because this is a prequel. We know that there is no spore drive in the Star Trek history. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way 
an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. ...that we are aware of. It's all warp drive. I mean, the warp drives get faster and faster as we get to the next generation and so on. But this bio drive is something that is doomed from the start because we know it can't possibly make it past some initial jumps, but they do actually make it work, which actually kind of surprised me a little bit, especially since it was, it was hard won. They really had to make a lot of crappy decisions in order to get this bio drive to work. Right. And then one of the mysteries is obviously what does Starfleet really know about what it is he's doing on board the discovery? Yeah. He's been given a lot of latitude. If they even know about what he's doing. Right. So I think it's really interesting because they start to bring up the moral questions of can we exploit this this non-predator to get us from point A to point B quickly? I mean, it's clearly hurting the creature. And you can see that Michael is not too pleased with having brought this about, really, because they were kind of hitting a dead end until she put two and two together by doing some clever things like calling in Saru to see if his threat glands would activate in the presence of the tardigrade, as they call it. I mean, it's really kind of cool how she does her investigation leads to this quantum jump to save a planet or a mining planet that somehow has 40% of the dilithium supply of the Federation. Talk about putting all your eggs in one basket. And I think it's just the only problem I had with episode four, I was kind of disappointed was, you know, Commander Landry barges into the tardigrade cell and gets herself killed. And you know what? She deserved it because yeah. that was the stupidest move I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, sometimes when you're used to seeing Federation soldiers behave a certain way, it can be disappointing when they are flawed. And I guess what we need to get used to here is that Star Trek Discovery is going to have a lot of flawed characters. And maybe we should admire that. Well, because do we simply want a reboot of what right. we already know? And I think if you really put some thought into it, the answer is no, we don't. Give us something new. We're sci-fi fans. We can handle it. Exactly. So I'm really enjoying it. It's kind of like I'm running hot and cold right now, but I know overall I'm going to enjoy it, especially since they put a heck of a lot of money into this thing. And it shows the production values are amazing. So I just have really enjoyed the characters. I think Sonequa is killing it as Michael Burnham. So I think we really are, are going to have a nice entry into the Star Trek pantheon of shows. I only have one disappointment. What's that? Haven't seen any red shirts yet. <laughs> That's right. I guess it would be a red stripe on the side, but yeah, you're right. I don't <laughs> think we're going to see any. No away missions. That would be too obvious. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to really have to switch gears kind of abruptly here because you have a very different show to talk about than one we're used to talking about on this program. 
but comedies are starting to really rise to the forefront in genre television. Well, they are, and I, I think this would certainly fit under the supernatural heading, which would certainly qualify it as a genre show, though certainly not in the traditional sense, and that is The Good Place, which appears on NBC, and it was created by Michael Shore, who uh, was one of the creative minds on The Office and Parks and Recreation, so you can imagine the, the humor in The Good Place, where in season two, which began on September 20th, 2017 both of the first two seasons have been 13 episodes each and you know michael i didn't think i would have to go back and brush up on my sartre and kierkegaard (laughs) to watch a network comedy but really at the heart of this show is the existential philosophy now don't let me scare anybody away. It's not like those philosophy courses you took in college that uh, you did your best to just stay awake. At least I did. But <laughs> not so with The Good Place. So here, here's the premise. Eleanor Shellstrop, who's played by Kristen Bell, who I know from Veronica Mars. I, I mean, I know that hundreds of thousands, millions of you know her from House of Lies. I've just only seen <laughs> seen bits and pieces of that show and and certainly a a ton of romantic comedy type movies she's great but eleanor finds that she's dead and now lives on in the good place which is headed by michael played by ted danson so i mean the good place she's in heaven right let's cut to the chase (laughs) they just don't call it that i mean they never mention anything about angels or anything like that they always use euphemisms for the good place the the man upstairs. I mean, everything is non-religious specific. Right. So Eleanor finds she's in the good place, but it doesn't take long for her to realize that in real life, she was a despicable human being. And only by a clerical error does she find herself avoiding eternity in hell. (laughs) And as the series moves forward, and we find this out in the first episode of season one, each person is assigned a soulmate, and her soulmate is this guy, Cheedy, who was a former ethics professor in real life, and what she ends up getting him to do, because, again, in real life, maybe con artist is a little bit too strong, but she decides, all right, you need to teach me how to be a good person so that I don't stick out here, yeah. and I get to stay brings him in on the secret very early right. that she does not belong there. And of course he takes it seriously. He gets his books out. He's got his whiteboard and he's holding lectures, which of course she's sleeping through <laughs> or, you know, thumbing through a magazine or whatever. But the, the dynamic between the two of them is really great. And the story follows four residents of the good place, Eleanor and Chidi, and then Jianyu and Tahani. And they are soulmates with each other as well. And, you know, Eleanor kind of inelegantly attempts to navigate her stay, hoping to not be sent to the bad place. And and she enlists the help of these other characters as well. And I mentioned existentialism, you know, when we started this discussion. And when you cut to the core of the show, they really do talk a lot about the fact that each individual is responsible for what he or she did in their time on earth, which is really what existentialism is all about, that you're responsible for your actions, not God, not social mores, you. 
Right. And I like how they equate a lot of the good things that people do. Certainly a lot of the people have done some amazing things that are in the good place. But Michael seems to be talking about a lot of the little things, the, a lot of the pop culture type, <laughs> you know, things that are either good or bad that people do in their lives. So it, it brings this very lighthearted aspect to, like you said, a very existential question so that we never take it too seriously. Right. And again, we don't really talk about very many half hour shows, which is what the good place is. So, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about a 22 and a half minute block of episode. So they have to throw a lot in there. But again, they don't try to fit 43 minutes into 22. Don't right. Don't get us wrong there. <laughs> but and this is probably the the biggest spoiler of the show. So, you know, if you haven't seen season one, cover Stop your now. ears, walk <laughs> away for a minute. But at the end of season one, Eleanor figures out the truth of the situation and we have this huge paradigm shift because she confronts Michael with the fact that this isn't the good place. This is the bad place. And what you've done is made this my own personal hell, not unlike Jean-Paul Sartre's play, The No Exit. Right. And once she figures that out, well, he's horrified because – A, she's correct, and B, now he's got to answer to his superiors because this was kind of working outside the parameters of what was usually done in the bad place. I mean, the bad place, they still hold a lot of credence to fire and brimstone and (laughs) impaling and things like that. Right, and I think the most surprising thing for me, in addition to the fact that They totally had us fooled. I mean, we were enjoying the show. The humor was great. All the chemistry between the characters was great. The comedic timing was wonderful. The pop culture references. And so we didn't even notice that this was coming. It was such a twist. And the fact that halfway through, we find out that John Yu, or as he's really named, named Jason, (laughs) doesn't belong there either. So we're like, what's going on here? But it turns out all four of them, including Tahani and Chidi, who at first glance appeared to be deserving of being in the good place also have flaws that make them deserving of being in the bad place. So they're all four in their personal hell, like the three people in no exit, you know, they they're torturing each other. Exactly. So now in season two, Michael has to rethink how he's going to handle this. I was so shocked. How the heck, as soon as I tuned in, I'm like, how are they going to do this? How are they going to keep the tension that was created by this falsehood that was kept up all season long where the good place wasn't really the good place. It's like, where can they take this? And I'm so pleased with what they've done so far. Oh, no question. And, and they ran two episodes back to back to start the season. Everything is great. Part one, everything is great. Part two. And we learned that Michael's experiment in creating this special hell only applied to those four, like we said, and that everybody else in this town they were on Michael's staff. And a lot of what we see in season two is the discontent that they feel in what Michael's doing. And some of them start to question, you know, his role in all of this. And we even get a, uh, a little coup uh, right. <laughs> bubbling in the background. We find out that Michael's been lying to his boss about what he's doing. And the fact that his staff posing as the residents of the good place 
he's now got to rethink how he approaches it. So instead of having the four come together the way he did initially, he's going to keep them apart. And what we find in season two is that there's always something that brings them together. But the other big reveal at the end of season one, Eleanor has the foresight to leave herself a note in Janet. What do you, what do you think about Janet? I mean, what is she first of all? Oh my gosh. She's not really a robot. Well, I love how they explain her because of course she's an artificial intelligence that's there as an assistant to people in the good place. And I love how, I think it was episode four, the most recent one. I I know as we're recording this, the good place is actually airing right now, (laughs) but episode four is the most recent one we saw. And I think he mentions that he stole Janet from an actual good place town. Didn't he? Uh, I can't remember. Yeah. So she's not an actual construct of the bad place. She's basically been stolen (laughs) so that he can use her for his own purposes, but what a great character. And she's got such great deadpan delivery, but also has the ability to evolve and, and become a character into her own, even falling in love with, is it Jason at one point Uh (laughs) in season one? Well, right. And what we find out that, that Michael's plan is because Eleanor left a note in Janet's mouth that simply says, find cheaty, which when Michael reboots the experiment to version 2.0, we're starting from scratch. And we see a lot of the same dialogue and scenes that we, we've seen previously. But each time, Eleanor figures it out quicker and quicker so that Michael has to keep rebooting. And I, you know, at one point, I think he said we're on version you know, 200 and whatever. <laughs> I think they're up to 800 and something. Now. And then is it? Jason that figures it out finally. I think every iteration might have a different person doing it. It's mostly Eleanor, but they've had ones that lasted. I think they said the longest one was 11 months before they figured it out. And the shortest one was when he accidentally reset it with his butt or something like that. Right. (laughs) Hit hit the button by mistake. So yeah, every iteration has been different. And I love episode two is quite clever in that way where they, kept showing us different snippets of different attempts i mean it was really kind of cool right and then when we get to episode three uh, that scene where michael is now distraught he's drinking he looks like he hasn't shaved in a week um (laughs) and like we said even jason figures it out at one point and and jason really comes across as a stupid individual so for michael (laughs) to have jason figure it out there's almost nothing worse at one point, one of her crew, Vicky, tells Michael that she's going to take over. Yeah, Vicky is an interesting character. She was brought in in season one as the real Eleanor Shellstrop that was supposed to have been in The Good Place. So she then spends all of season two seeking to better herself and get a better role in this whole scenario. Right. <laughs> so she wants to take over for Michael in that because of that. And then you have to love a comedy that brings up the idea of Nietzsche's eternal recurrence theory, which <laughs> yeah. again, within the context of the show makes perfect sense that the universe and, and all the existence and energy has constantly been recurring and is going to continue to recur, which is what's happening here in Michael's you know, existence in the bad place. But then that idea that Eleanor and Chidi have apparently known each other a really long time and what that really means hasn't been answered yet. 
So are we going to get into later on in the season, these past lives, perhaps something like that? Yeah, we I think we saw a little bit of that in season one. But yeah, I'd love to get more in depth with that as we move along. And of course, I guess the big thing that we have to talk about where Michael changes strategy altogether. And that's what I think season two is going to be all about. Right. I mean, he comes to the fore and asks them to work with him against the impending coup. Yeah. Pretend like it's working so that I can keep my job. <laughs> right. I love it. And he promises that he'll let them get to the good place. For real. Yeah. For real. And I guess even take him with them if they can, or a lot of different possibilities here, but how do they earn their way into the good place from where they're at now? Very interesting premise. And what a deal. Yeah. But Eleanor has reservations. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is too good to be true. And, and she opposes helping Michael, but, but Michael's desperate at this point because his survival depends on them helping him because as you alluded, if he's found out, will he be sent to the bad place? Uh, yes. Well, and there's even greater things that can be done to uh, these eternal beings, like, I don't know, putting them on the surface of the sun or ripping them to shreds, something like that. Very, very horrible. But right. yeah, it's just so great that the mythology that they've built up around the show, because it doesn't bear any resemblance to anything religious. It just has hints and uh, bits and pieces of heaven and hell conceptually but really is its own thing and has, has really created a nice little world that has its own rules that we enjoy uh, watching the p different people follow. Right. So now we just have to wait and see if they get t-shirts made for <laughs> team cockroach, team cockroach. Yeah. Based on the Jason story of the, the dance crew. Uh, <laughs> right. right. But I, I really think it's worth taking a look. I mean, it's a half hour show. Yeah. I mean, what do you have to lose? It's, probably on netflix i guess i should have checked but <laughs> i think it's on hulu i, I don't yeah, i don't remember but no it's it's um dirk gently that's on hulu season one i was about to mention that but yeah it's, it should be accessible and it's definitely easy to catch up on because there isn't even a full order of episodes anyway even if it was a full length 42 minute show so definitely something that we highly recommend but speaking of dirk gently's holistic detective agency we were originally going to be sharing our interview segment with Luvia Peterson of Ghost Wars at this point. But of course, we did release that podcast early, so look for it on your podcast feed if you haven't. We did share that early because of the fact that we actually went into that interview blind, having not seen the Ghost Wars premiere. It has since aired, and so we decided to release that just before the premiere to share with you our initial thoughts without any kind of spoilers because, of course, we hadn't seen it. And now... We're sharing with you an interview with Samuel Barnett, the male lead of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, because that show premieres its second season on October 14th, which is the day after this podcast is released. So hopefully it's coming to you in time for you to, to tune into that. And again, if you haven't seen season one, it's on Hulu it's eight or 10 episodes. I'm not exactly sure, but it is available on Hulu. So you can catch up with this. And I highly recommend it, especially since as you will find out in this interview, something I didn't know. And I guess the actors didn't even know until they got back to set. It's almost being treated as an anthology series where 
season one and season two are very different from each other. So season one has its own story that gets wrapped up in the finale. And season two is continuing some of the concepts that were introduced in season one, but has its own separate storyline. So I'll let Samuel Barnett tell you all about it because he does share a lot of great teasers for season two. So here he is from our interview that we had with him last week. Well, October is a busy month for genre television, but one show we want to make sure is on everyone's radar is BBC America's Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Inspired by, but not necessarily bearing a resemblance to the actual novel by Douglas Adams, we're very excited to be talking to Dirk Gently himself, Mr. Samuel Barnett, who genre fans may also remember from his turn as Dracula's bug-eating disciple Renfield in Showtime's Penny Dreadful. Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency airs its season two premiere on Saturday, October 14th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Samuel Barnett. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to uh, be talking about the show because we left at a very convoluted moment (laughs) in season one. (laughs) And the one thing that I noticed is that the detective agency that's mentioned in the title has now actually come into being. So is there going to be a new case to solve even though it seems like Farah and Todd are the only ones that haven't been rounded up by Blackwing at this point. <laughs> yeah, there, there is indeed going to be a new case to solve. I think one of the things I didn't understand myself, even towards the end of season one, um, when we were shooting it, was that this is very much like an anthology show. So we've got the same characters, obviously, in each season with some new guests and stuff, but a completely different type of thing going on so season one was body swapping and time travel and season two is kind of high fantasy with magic so that's the kind of overarching theme of season two but there is very much a new mystery that goes on and also like you said we left the characters at quite a crucial interesting point at the end (laughs) of season one so we find out a lot more about the backstory of that and um, a bit about where Dirk's come from and season two is a lot more character driven as well as plot driven. So I think I, I'm I'm really hopeful and I do think that people are going to like it a lot. Okay. You mentioned that uh, we might get a little backstory there. So I, I noticed that a lot of the viewers have really enjoyed the relationships in the show. And even though Todd initially blamed Dirk for the time loop, getting him involved in the first place, and Farrah seems to have at least come along on her own accord a little bit. But how important are these relationships to Dirk? And how do you feel like having friends was something of a rarity for Dirk, perhaps, before he met them? Oh, yeah. I mean, these relationships are absolutely central for for the show and for Dirk as a character. And in fact, for all of the characters, because it, it might have looked like Dirk really needed people in season one. But actually, of course, the truth was people needed each other. And Todd needed Dirk just as much as Dirk needed Todd. And And if season one was about Dirk trying to get people to believe him and believe his methods and believe in the kind of interconnectedness of all things. He now has that in season two. People do believe in his skills and his powers, but also if season one was about Dirk trying to get friends. Season two is very much about (laughs) what do you do when you've got them and how do you keep them? And Dirk doesn't really know how to do relationships, whether that's friendships or relationships as we know them. So there's a lot going on in terms of how he's expected to kind of step up and be a friend. And he doesn't necessarily know how to do that. I think he gets it wrong a lot of the time. 
Okay, so I was actually going to ask you uh, about the time travel elements and the sci-fi elements that we had last year, but but you say that there's going to be more fantasy elements, and yeah. we hear that there's a sort of a Narnia scenario between a fictional town called Bergsburg and then Wendemore. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's set in these different locations this season. So we have the town of Bergsburg, which is like, I mean, <laughs> that's such a great name for a town. It's like <laughs> calling something Townstown um, or Villesville, Townsville. Um, and then we've got the fantasy world of Wendemore. And for reasons which will become apparent, there is this kind of portal between the two places in Bergsburg and, and Wendemore. And things from both worlds start bleeding into one another. There is also this prophecy in Wendemore around Dirk Gently. So it all, everything is connected still. That's still one of the main themes of the show, that everything is connected. But there is a third location in the show which involves Blackwing, the government facility where Dirk is being held. And obviously he gets kidnapped by Friedkin at the end of season one. Mm -hmm. And we find him at the beginning of season two held in this government facility where they've been trying to capture... And indeed, they had in the past captured people like Dirk and the Rowdy Three. So those are the kind of three main locations. And again, it all looks like at the beginning of the show that, I mean, how are these three locations possibly connected? Of course, it all unfolds and you find out how. Now, I wouldn't be surprised, even though we left Bart with a rock in her hand against an army. <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she maybe <laughs> escaped that fate. But let's assume she doesn't for the moment. Can you tell us whether Dirk has dealings with her in season two? Because it was so brief in season one, their interaction, considering they're these polar opposites, the holistic detective and the holistic assassin. I mean, I think it's kind of necessary in a way for the functioning of the universe that we're in that <laughs> that Dirk and Bart <laughs> don't meet too often. Yeah. Because it's, you're right, they're so polar opposites that their energies would just kind of implode or explode there what can i tell you without spoiling anything well just um, just say does does she still have a plot line going on with ken because we need her he's like her todd right <laughs> he is like her todd and and i have to say those two were my absolute favorite <laughs> double act in season one like who'd have thought that would work because it's so unlikely on paper but fiona Dorif and umpo they just bring so much to those characters and the chemistry they have is amazing. So, um, oh, you're just going to have to wait and see with season two. Okay. <laughs> I can't tell you too much, but I will tell you that, you know, everybody's been scattered. And so at the beginning of season two, they're all trying to find each other. Okay. Well, one thing I noticed about your portrayal of Dirk, uh, I was looking back at some of the clips of Renfield, your character on Penny Dreadful, and there's one time when he says, I'll be right as rain soon. Right as rain. Yes, I will. Right as rain. I will be. Yes. And it reminded me a little bit of how Dirk talks sometimes too. And I was curious whether or not it's written that way. Do you get a bit of license from the producers to deliver your lines in kind of a frenetic way? Or is that one of your challenges? <laughs> no, there, it is written that way. I have no license when it comes to that, but I think it's partly why I maybe get employed for roles. <laughs> I'm able to deliver lines quickly and at speed whilst making sense of them. And in terms of, I mean, if we were to slow down Dirk's speeches and monologues from season one or season, I mean, I have a big one in season two. It's like the show would be an extra episode long because it, 
<laughs> Max Landis writes such complex thoughts and and really, really long sentences and speeches for Dirk, and they need to be delivered at a really quick pace. And I honestly think it's one. <laughs> I think Arvind, one of our execs on the job, I think he would say it's one of the reasons I got the job is that I was able to kind of make sense of the text at speed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think uh, Todd is able to do that as well. So yeah. <laughs> well, absolutely. I think that's one of the things about all of the actors in this show. I think that's what they all have in common is that they're all able to handle text in that way because it is hard. The way Max writes, he's a real craftsman. You know, every sentence is structured a certain way for a reason. Um, he manages to tie kind of thoughts and emotions together really cleverly, but you have to follow what's in the script. And if you do, you can just rely on it. You can just kind of sink into that. And each of the actors, I think, in this show have really good comic ability, really good emotional connection, and are able to handle quite complex and dense text at speed. <laughs> now, has there ever been a time on set where you were just completely baffled by what your character was doing based on the number of scripts you had in your hand? Yes. And did it become clear later? or Like, in other words... Does Robert Cooper and Max Landis actually explain the full picture to you, or do they just let you figure it out on your own? <laughs> oh, you know, it's a, it's a combination of everything. Because I remember Max sat Elijah and I down and, and talked us through season one, and we were just like, yeah, you know what? There's no point talking us through it because we cannot follow this. <laughs> we're just going to have to do it. Season two is, I think, easier to follow. It's no less complex. It's no less crazy. But I do think the plot is easier to follow, which which is nice. But of, I mean, yeah, we're shooting out of sequence and there's 10 episodes and it's really dense material. And so obviously there are plenty of times on stage when it's just not possible. <laughs> oh, oh man, there's, there's someone at my door. Okay. Well, actually that, that was my final question. So oh, I, I'll let you go. Okay. <laughs> oh no. Are you sure? Yeah, no, totally. I, that, oh, that was literally well, great. my final question. So thank you so much for joining me today, Samuel oh, Barnett. Thank you. And we look forward thank to the show. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, and as you heard there, we did get interrupted there at the very end. He was talking to me uh, between appearances. He was doing a lot of publicity for Dirk Gently, and he was at New York Comic Con as well with the cast. So uh, we did get cut short there, but it was a great chat, and I really enjoyed hearing some of the details of Season 2. And as it turns out, after we did this interview... Uh, I was assigned the privilege of reviewing Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency for Den of Geek. So I'm really looking forward to sharing those with you on the site. Man, do you have any time to do your real job anymore? <laughs> well, I'm almost done with Channel Zero because that okay. only has two episodes left. And then I'll just have the Orville and uh, <laughs> and Dirk Gently. So, but shows that I enjoy. So I'm really enjoying doing that. And we've got a lot of shows that are coming out in the next few months. So we have a lot of decisions to make Dave and I about what we're doing next, but that's going to be it for this edition of sci-fi fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion today. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as sci-fi fidelity. And in November, we're going to look at a few different possibilities, including the gifted, which got bumped this month. Marvel's Runaways, Traveler Season 2, Stranger Things Season 2. Who knows? <laughs> and a likely interview for Hulu's time travel comedy, Future Man. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. 
Plus, we do take suggestions for future topics. Just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media or in an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month.